when you look at world history, uh, there may be a handful of events you can generally say it's a revolution where you have fundamental change, uh, transformation of the state, transformation of the whole uh, ideological system, social system, economic system. If you are using the, the word revolution in that, uh, I would say, true sense, then Iran falls into that. It it's becomes, a, I would say, a landmark event in world history. The end of Iran's monarchy came early today when Khomeini's followers took control of the palace of the Shah. The imperial guard there... January 1979. Iranian Shah Muhammad Reza Pahlavi, leader of the monarchy of Iran for almost 40 years, leaves the country. Soon after, exiled revolutionary Ruhollah Khomeini returns to Iran. Khomeini quickly seizes control of the country and becomes Ayatollah Khomeini, or in other words, Supreme Leader of the Islamic Republic of Iran. That regime is still in power today, led by Khomeini's sole successor, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei. Ayatollah Ali Khamenei is the second supreme leader of the Iranian theocracy. The first one, of course, being uh, Khomeini, um, who died in uh, 1988. And ever since, Khomeini has been the supreme leader of Iran. Many first thought, and in fact, it appears that he was elevated to that position, even though he actually did not have the religious credentials and following to be able to take that position. But he was done so because they thought that they could manipulate him. And I think he has proven himself to be one that actually is quite astute at manipulating those who thought they could manipulate him. Hamani has been in charge of Iran for more than 30 years. Hamani is literally one of the most powerful people in the world. And more than that, he is typically positioned as one of America's principal antagonists. But Looking back, did America create that antagonist? Understanding who Hamani is sheds light not only on Iran, but on the United States, on politics and power, and how the world became the world it is today. So really, who is Supreme Leader of Iran, Ayatollah Ali Hamani? I'm Sean Morrow, and this is Who Is, the podcast from Now This, where we examine power through the stories of people who have it. Hamani was born on April 19th, 1939, which, yes, means he's an Aries, in Mashhad, a city in Iran, not far from the borders of Turkmenistan and Afghanistan. According to his official retelling of his childhood, quote, we had a difficult life. I remember that sometimes at night we didn't have anything in the house for dinner. Nevertheless, my mother would try to scrape something up and that dinner would be bread and raisins. My father's house only had one room and a gloomy basement. End quote. Even though Hamani says he grew up poor, he did have access to a wealth of knowledge, the most important wealth of all. He writes, quote, My father was a well-known religious scholar who was very pious and a bit of a recluse. That's important. In 1940, only 10% of all elementary-aged children were enrolled in school in Iran, and less than 1% of youth between the age of 12 and 20 were in secondary school. Hamani, from an early age, had access to something the vast majority of his demographic did not. 
an education. By 11, Hamani was a cleric, wearing full-on cleric robes in daily life to the point where other children made fun of him, which is actually super relatable. When Hamani turns 12, Iran gets a new prime minister, and he's generally super well-liked among Iranians. In, in 1953, Iran had a po very popular prime minister, Mossadegh, and he was mainly uh, po popular because he nationalized the British oil company. That's Irvand Abrahamian, who's been studying Iran for decades. He's one of the leading authorities writing about Iran today. But you might be wondering, what does it mean to nationalize an oil company? Basically, it means the wealth derived from the extraction of oil instead of flowing to, you know, Europe and the United States, that wealth will stay in the country where the oil was extracted in the first place. But that doesn't mean that the people are necessarily benefiting or seeing any of that wealth. This was in Iran seen as the declaration of independence of Iran from uh, British colonialism. Until then, uh, Britain had been the main imperial power in Iran. The idea was to reclaim Iran's resources for Iran. But it wasn't just the British who had a problem with that. The important thing is the American oil companies realized that if Iran was successful in nationalizing, then other countries like Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, Indonesia, Venezuela, in all these countries, U.S. oil companies basically ran the oil business. In those countries, uh, nationalization would spread like wildfire. And that would be a drastic hit at the American oil companies. But more than that, it would shift basically the gravity of power, oil power, away from the Western oil companies to local states, uh, third world states. And this was not seen as something that was acceptable. It was seen as, as some oil companies said, it would be the end of the, uh, of the world as we knew it if Iran succeeded in nationalizing the oil company. It's a sad reality, but when you hear about a country realizing its power and seeking ownership of its natural resources, you know what happens next. In 1953, uh, the British and the U.S. CIA engineered his downfall through a military coup. Mossadegh nationalizes Iran's oil, and the British approach the United States with an ask. Can you help us coup these guys? Secretary of State John Dulles gets President Eisenhower in on it, and John's brother, Alan Dulles, director of the CIA, authorizes $1 million in CIA spending for use, quote, in any way that would bring about the fall of Mossadegh. Side note, the company in question... The Anglo-Iranian oil company becomes British Petroleum, or BP, which is maybe the station where you fill up your gas tank and is definitely the company that spilled millions of barrels of oil into the Gulf of Mexico in 2010. Remember, Ali Hamani is 14 when this goes down. He is deeply, deeply suspicious of the United States. He believes strongly that the U.S. is ultimately seeking not just to undo the Iranian regime and the theocracy, but also that the United States does not have an interest in seeing uh, a flourishing and, and strong Iran, but rather would like to keep a balance of power in the region that is to the benefit uh, of some of the U.S. strategic partners, such as Israel and Saudi Arabia. That's Trita Parsi 
co-founder and executive vice president of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, a think tank that considers alternatives to endless wars in the Middle East, among other things. But back to Hominy and the coup. In 2012, as supreme leader of Iran, Hamani told a group of students, quote, It's interesting to realize that America overthrew Mossadegh's government, even though he had shown no animosity towards them. He had stood up to the British and trusted the Americans. He had hoped that the Americans would help him. He had friendly relations with them. He expressed an interest in them. Perhaps he expressed humility towards them. And still, the Americans overthrew such a government. It's like your first breakup. You never really forget it, and it was probably funded by the CIA. But to be clear, for millions of Iranians, this is not funny at all. After the coup, the authority of Shah Mohammad Reza Pahlavi is re-established with the backing of the West. Yes, this is the same Shah that will be overthrown in the revolution I told you about in the cold open, but hold on. And that soured relations between the Iranian public and Britain and United States So from 1953 onwards, uh, the monarchy in Iran actually lost its legitimacy, in main part because the Shah had consolidated power with foreign powers against the national leader. So this really made the monarchy after 1953 really illegitimate in in the eyes of much of the public. And that's not all. Had it not been for the 1953 coup uh, in which the U.S. uh, got rid of the democratically elected prime minister of Iran and reinstated the Shah, the Shah would not have had the last 25 years of his reign, which also unfortunately happened to be the most brutal years of his reign. You're going to hear several different perspectives on history in this episode. History is messy, and the account we live with doesn't always match how people who lived through something remember it. In 1958, Hamani goes to Qam, a Shia holy city, to study. Before the revolution, he was actually uh, viewed as someone who was quite westernized and uh, acted, uh, was familiar with Western uh, habits, Western thought. Uh, He actually uh, uh, flatters himself as being a connoisseur of poetry, literature, And uh, before the revolution, he often was seen uh, with a pipe. He smokes cigarettes and pipes and enjoys novels, but doesn't abandon the clerical robes. According to Mehdi Kalaji, a comb-trained Shiite theologian working in Washington, D.C., quote, Hamani approached literary circles, he liked poetry and the arts, and never identified himself as a typical cleric. The problem was that if you have the clerical robes, the intellectuals would not recognize you as one of them. If you go to the clerical circles and talk the way Hamani would, then they do not recognize you. Here's Trita Parsi. He was part of the opposition to the Shah. Uh, He was jailed by the Shah. He was tortured by the Shah. Yeah, Hamani is personally sent to prison by the Shah at least six times. Hamani once spent time in a cell with an anti-Shah Marxist. The BBC interviewed that Marxist, who said of his cellmate, quote, He was a very good man. He joked about very, very small things that had nothing to do with sexuality. The BBC asked him, Did you ever think he would end up as the supreme leader of Iran? Never. And never. And never. And never. Hamani and others would subsequently allege that hundreds of thousands of Iranians were imprisoned or murdered by the Shah. 
On the other hand, many commentators and historians believe those numbers are wildly inflated. I can't tell you whom to believe, but I can say that the current regime is incredibly brutal and has imprisoned and murdered many people. I want to bring in another voice. I'm Manaz Afghami. Uh, I'm originally from Iran, uh, and uh, I uh, grew up in the United States, going to school here and to university. And on my return, I was uh, teaching at the at the National University of Iran, where I set up an association of university women, which led me to be the head of the women's organization of Iran, and from there to Minister of State for Women's Affairs in Iran. Afkami was the first and only Iranian woman to hold the title of Minister of State for Women's Affairs. Doing this work, Afkami learned a lot about women in Iran at the time. What they unanimously said is that first and foremost, they have to have power over their own lives, and that means economic empowerment. And so they want to be economically independent. So uh, that became the basis of the centers that we created around the country, uh, which really uh, brought education and skills building to women. So uh, all of that uh, gained us really in, in several years a really huge constituency around the country. Afkami's life and work do offer a different assessment of life under the Shah. Iran was... Uh, something like the hope of uh, the world, and uh, that Iran was the best example of what can be done uh, to develop a country, to make it join the new industrial uh, world. In 1977, then-President Jimmy Carter toasted Iran on New Year's Eve. Iran, because of the great leadership of the Shah, is an island of stability in one of the more troubled areas of the world. There is really very few people who have any real sense of what Iran was like in the 70s. It's like someone wanting to imagine what happened in America on January 6th, you know, maybe five years before. It's uh, completely something that makes me feel as if sometimes I feel as if I'm on a new plan on a different planet you know especially since my colleagues are they were all much older than me and they're mostly dead now there's hardly anyone that that one can reach out to and say do you remember you know and so much of this uh, revolution has been misrepresented misformulated uh, 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 and thought about, and uh, we just don't understand what it has done to the world we live in. The 1979 revolution took Afkami by surprise. Did you ever imagine mm-hmm. that the revolution of the 70s would occur, that this would happen in Iran? Is that something you, that you envisioned? No, not at all. Not only I didn't, I, I can safely say no one did. Hindsight is 2020. Here's Irvand Abrahamian. Although the Shah during the 60s, 70s, got a lot of oil money and spent it on huge arms expenditures. And by 1975, Iran had one of the largest armies in the world, in the middle, especially in the Middle East. Uh, despite all that, um, 
the regime was very fragile because it lacked really popular support legitimacy. So in 1977-78, when the regime faced with fairly minor problems, economic problems, uh, human rights problems, pressure from the international community, including from President Carter to recognize human rights, these small pressures were, began to really unravel the system. Enter Ruhala Khomeini. Khomeini, although he spoke like he wanted to go to return to true Islam and uh, he was obviously seen as a religious figure, much of his interpretations of both Islam and Shia Islam were very innovative. They were not based on fundamentals of the past. They were not based on foundational fundamentals of the text. They were, in fact, very sort of out-of-the-box thinking. For instance, in in Islam, the eventual salvation uh, will come when the Messiah, the 12th Imam, returns, very much like in uh, in Judaism and Christianity. Uh, salvation uh, is something at the end of the world. What he turned this round and said, basically, uh, before the salvation return, we should actually have a revolution and we should uh, basically create the situation for the return. So it was became a much more immediate political action. And previous religious leaders had been actually quite apolitical. Religion and politics, always an electrifying mix. Another way he was very uh, innovative is that he brought in a lot of populism uh, about basically attacking the ruling class, the elite, uh, and also talking about redistribution of wealth, um, of helping the shantytown dwellers rather than the palace dwellers. So he took a lot of the language of what normally we would call uh, populism, especially a sort of Latin American populism of the downtrodden, the um, the wretched of the earth, and appealed to them. And this is what made him uh, have mass support. Now, this didn't happen. Uh, there wasn't a massive redistribution of wealth after the revolution. But the important thing is, in, during the revolution, this was the message that resonated very much among the public. This is why I would argue it's, it's not really uh, fun, uh, Islamic fundamentalism. It's a much more a form of radical populism. Here's Trita Parsi. The revolution was not something that was driven just by uh, the religious uh, elements of society. Um, the, the role of leftist elements was equally important, but they lacked the type of charismatic figure that the religious uh, uh, groupings had in Khomeini. For Khomeini, the flight from Paris to Tehran marked the end of 15 years in exile. For the people of Iran, the arrival of his jetliner signaled the beginning of even more radical social and political changes than have already taken place. Khomeini, almost unknown outside of Iran just a few months ago, returned a hero, the man who from long distance had led the revolution to topple the Shah. 
Ayatollah Rahala Khomeini becomes the supreme leader of Iran, and Ali Khamenei finds himself with the opportunity to play a part in the revolutionary government. We'll be back after this. I'm Sean Morrow, and this is Who Is. Today, we're looking at Supreme Leader of Iran, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, whose political power begins after the 1979 revolution. But what was the revolution like for someone who lived it? Who was an adolescent, much like Khamenei himself was during the 1953 coup we talked about earlier? So I was 11 years old when the revolution happened in 1979, in February 1979. And I remember that people were really hopeful. People were really hoping that with the fall of Shah's dictatorship, a new government come to power that can bring them prosperity and also equality. That's Maziar Bahari, a filmmaker and journalist who was imprisoned and tortured by Khamenei's government. He'd later start IranWire, a citizen journalism news site that offers a unique look inside Iran today. A couple of years after the revolution, many people were free, but of course there were many atrocities that were committed right after the revolution. Right today, after the victory of the new regime, they were killing dozens of Shah's generals on the rooftop of where Ayatollah Khomeini, the leader of uh, the revolution, was living in. And we could see the pictures of the bodies on front pages of the newspapers, but people didn't care. Revolutionaries were actually, I remember, many members of my family and many of our friends, we were happy that they were killing these Shah's uh, generals. And Unfortunately, we and my family and many of our friends did not know that that fate is going to happen to many of us in a few years' time. Meanwhile, Ali Khamenei continues to rise in Ruhollah Khomeini's government. He's on the Revolutionary Council, kind of like the United States cabinet, and at some point is named Deputy Defense Minister. Super importantly, he's put in charge of Tehran's Friday Prayer which gives him a weekly chance to address more or less the entire country. It's a role he holds to this day. In 1981, he survived an assassination attempt. A few months later, he became president. The initial optimism of the revolution among everyday Iranians was fading fast, and it was becoming clear what Iran under supreme leadership would look like. The atmosphere in Iran became more claustrophobic, more fearful and the Ayatollah, Ayatollah Khomeini's government started to destroy one group after another. And uh, after a year and a half after the revolution, of course, the war happened with Iraq. Yes, there was a lengthy and devastating war between Iran and Iraq, starring none other than Saddam Hussein who, supported by the United States, Europe, and a few of the major players in the Persian Gulf, became known as, quote, the defender of the Arab world. Hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people died. And both Iran and Iraq manipulated the number of casualties to support their own respective political ambitions. Because of the war, the regime managed to even consolidate its power even more. 
and we could see more military presence in the city. We, as high school students, we had to take military lessons. And with the war finished, there was a new class of former war commanders who came to the cities and took over many businesses. The Revolutionary Guards, uh, the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps that was founded in the beginning of the revolution and was supposed to defend the integrity of the country became this, it was not only a big military force, but it was also a big uh, industrial force. And it took over many businesses, it took over many industries. The Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps was set up after the revolution as Khomeini and others felt they couldn't count on the military. It's become one of the key elements of the regime today, an enormous military and economic power that sustains the Islamic Republic. Throughout the Iran-Iraq War, Khomeini himself was in charge of the Revolutionary Guards. This is a major reason why Khomeini was chosen to succeed Khomeini, who in many ways embodied the spirit of the revolution in its ideal form. That, of course, posed a problem. Here's Irvand Abrahamian. Khomeini, I think people were quite aware of that time, that Khomeini was something special. He, you could say, had charismatic authority. So I think in history, you have the emergence of a person who is then viewed as something, uh, someone charismatic who can say, you follow me because I have authority beyond tradition beyond institutions. I can even speak for God or for history. I have this sort of trump card of authority. Yes, trump card of authority. Literally millions followed Khomeini because they saw him as something superhuman. The question was how to institutionalize this once he died. Who was going to be able to carry this? Because no one else was obviously going to have the charisma to be able to have that. And that's where Hamani comes in. So then the problem was how to find a replacement for Khomeini once he died. And they, the choice fell on Khomeini, even though Khomeini was not a senior acad- a scholar or a senior cleric, He was a very low-ranking cleric, but he had been politically active, and he seemed to have the savvy of organization and dealing with people. And he's been very good at, I think, at uh, cementing ties between himself as a person and the, the very sensitive institutions inside the Islamic Republic the main institution being, of course, the Revolutionary Guards. He has managed to basically use his institutional links uh, to survive and consolidate his position. This is not an unfamiliar story. And if you've been listening to the show, you know that individuals leverage power through their relationship to institutions. Here's Maziar Bahari. And Ayatollah Khamenei, Ali Khamenei, came to power. And he was clever enough to ally himself with the Revolutionary Guards and Ministry of Intelligence because he knew that the future of Iran will be 
somehow a militarized authoritarian regime. Which is largely the Iran we have today. A militarized authoritarian regime. Khamenei now enters his fourth decade in power. So what does that mean for the millions of people who live in Iran and the rest of us? We'll be back. Khamenei's reign has outlasted five U.S. presidents. George H.W. Bush. We can't have normalized relations with a, with a state that's branded a terrorist state. It's going to take a change in behavior. We don't mind name-calling. They keep calling us the great Satan. That doesn't bother us. Sticks and stones. Remember the old uh, adage, he'll hurt your bones? The names don't hurt you, but performance is what we're looking for. Bill Clinton. I am formally announcing my intention to cut off all trade and investment with Iran. This is not a step I take lightly, but I am convinced that instituting a trade embargo with Iran is the most effective way our nation can help to curb that nation's drive to acquire devastating weapons and its continued support for terrorism. George W. Bush, who listed Iran on his axis of evil just months after the 9-11 attacks. Iran aggressively pursues these weapons and exports terror, while an unelected few repress the Iranian people's hope for freedom. Barack Obama. To date, Iran has chosen the path of defiance. That's why we have steadily built a broader and deeper coalition of nations to pressure the Iranian government. And Donald Trump. As long as I'm president of the United States, Iran will never be allowed to have a nuclear weapon. Good morning. We've told you a lot about the past. The regime changes of Iran, CIA-controlled and not. But what about today? Here's Maziar Bahari. The power in Iran is in the hands of Khamenei. Khamenei is the leader of Iran. And the president of Iran is like a prime minister in an absolute monarchy. So in an absolute monarchy or in an absolute dictatorship like North Korea, you don't talk to the uh, prime minister or you don't talk to the ministers. You have to talk to the leader. And if we want to address the leader in Iran, we have to address Khamenei. Khamenei has faced unrest at home and countless foes abroad. He isn't some obscure despot. But surprisingly, Khamenei remains supreme leader and Iran remains the Islamic Republic. How has Khamenei managed it? He has been very clever. Khamenei has been very clever in terms of being able to uh, act as an underdog that no one took him seriously. And in fact, uh, when you talk to people who knew him when he was young, uh, they tell you that he was always someone who was just uh, sitting in a corner and listening to people. He was never someone who was a leader until he became leader in 1989. As a young uh, cleric, he really wanted to become a poet and he really wanted to become a man of words and man of literature. So uh, many, uh, when he was living in his native city of Mashhad in the 1960s, 
he used to hang out with many uh, famous Iranian poets and no one took him seriously, but they were interested in him because he was a young mullah who was interested in poetry. And there are some of those uh, poets are still around. And, you know, when you talk to them privately, they tell you that, you know, well, Khamenei was a nice guy. And in fact, uh, even when he became uh, president of Iran after the revolution, he was one of the more pragmatic and practical uh, politicians in Iran. He was not someone who was a fervent revolutionary. Opponents of the regime, they would go to see him and they would, uh, he would help some of them because he had been in prison. Uh, before the revolution, he knew many communists in, in prison. Yeah, they were his cellmates, like we talked about earlier. And get this, Maziar Bahari actually met Hamani back in the day. I was an assistant photographer in 1985, and we went to the presidential palace in Iran to take uh, Khamenei's portrait. And he was a very nice guy. He was someone with self-deprecating humor. He talked to the photographer I was with. He was a famous photographer. And the, that photographer was used to be married to a famous actress in Iran. Khamenei asked, asked him about his ex-wife. And he even knew some of the films that the ex-wife uh, was in. And so he didn't strike you as a monster. He didn't strike you as someone who was going to be, uh, you know, the nasty dictator that he is now. But, you know, as the old cliche goes, power corrupt and absolute power absolutely corrupt. So Khamenei became this really Shakespearean figure in a sense that, you know, he became like Macbeth, that, you know, he starts as a nice guy in the beginning of the play and then he becomes the king and becomes, you know, nastier. But instead of Lady Macbeth in Khamenei's life, he has his own, uh, you know, Lady Macbeth within and he becomes... Uh, more dictatorial and more authoritarian every day. And more than 30 years after he's become the supreme leader, now we see that he's someone who is just not in touch with people at all. Someone who's just thinking about his legacy to uh, someone who just wants his regime to survive. Which gets us to a really important question. What does this regime mean for the people who actually live in Iran? Here's Trita Parsi. This is a very, very corrupt political system. I mean, the income inequality, wealth inequality during the time of the Shah was oftentimes pointed to as a significant driver of the revolution. To me, it appears that the income inequality, the wealth inequality today is worse than it was during the time of the Shah. It is possible that Hamani is one of the wealthiest men in the world, a far cry from what was promised during the revolution. Iran is no different from other countries that have been sanctioned. The literature on this and the empirical evidence on this is very clear. Sanctions, particularly broad-based sanctions that target the entire economy, hit the population the most. And mostly, the vulnerable elements of the population. The governments, the elites, 
have abilities to shield themselves from that economic pressure. The population does not. There's a joke in the State Department during the years that the US and the UN was sanctioning Saddam Hussein. And the joke was that the last chicken sandwich in Iraq will be eaten by Saddam Hussein. It was a recognition that you had to essentially make everyone else starve first before starvation would reach Saddam Hussein. Iran is no different. Uh, the population is suffering tremendously. The government, the regime itself, has a way to protect itself. Many elements in the regime are actually benefiting financially from the sanctions because they're in control of the borders and as a result, they're in control of what gets smuggled into the country and they can uh, uh, charge immense prices for those smuggled goods. Uh, and again, that is a phenomenon that we have seen in other countries. The idea that it brings the United States leverage in a negotiation, I think is half the truth. The other part of the truth is, while the United States is pursuing sanctions, what policies are it not pursuing? But has the United States ever pursued policies that would benefit the people of Iran? And will the Islamic Republic ever change? Here's Maziar Bahari. In 2009, when the regime brutally suppressed people's peaceful protests, we realized many Iranians, most Iranians, collectively realized that this idea of reform in Iran does not work. That Islamic Republic, as we had known it from 1979 until 2009, cannot change. So people in Iran, they are quite aware of what is going on in their country. They can feel the oppression every day. They can see that they are becoming poorer. They can see that people in the government are becoming richer every day. But they want to live. They do not want to revolt and get killed. So that's why you don't see the manifest manifestation of people's disappointment in terms of protest that often in Iran. Every now and then, like what happened in November of 2019 or what happened in early 2018, you can see people coming to, to the streets and risking their lives, setting offices on fire and protest. But that doesn't mean that people have been angry with the government only twice in the past uh, one decade. That it, it means that people just want to live their lives. They're just tired of years of revolution, years of violence, years of war, and they just want to live. But the government keeps on disappointing them. The government keeps on screwing up their lives. No matter how powerful a supreme leader might be, like Khomeini before him, and really everyone, there is one thing Khomeini can't escape. He's not likely to live much, much longer. He's already old. Uh, he does have cancer. Um, and the question that is perhaps even more relevant is who will be the person that replaces him? And will the uh, secession be one that the system survives or will it cause a major, major upheaval inside the country? I was talking to a Syrian uh, a former prisoner uh, who was in Syria and he said that uh, he was in uh, prison in Syria and he was tortured every day and all his cellmates were tortured every day. And then he heard some 
different accents and he said it was not a Syrian Arabic accent they had some people came to the prison and they had different accents and he said after a while they uh, they didn't allow us to be together because when they are in a communal cell and if one person is tortured that person goes back to the communal cell and the rest of the prisoners they console him and they take care of that him take care of him but he said uh, when those foreign uh, people who happened to be Iranians, they came to prison, they put us all in solitary, solitary confinements. The physical torture became less, but the mental torture uh, intensified. And he said the prison became even more intolerable, even though there was less physical torture after the Iranians came to the Syrian prison. And that is the nature of the Iranian regime that it is psychologically torturing 80 million people. It may not be physically torturing 80 million people, but it's psychologically torturing them. Psychological torture of a nation of more than 80 million people. Khamenei is enigmatic, a politically adept religious leader who may be one of the wealthiest men in the world. Certainly, as the man who has been in charge of Iran for more than 30 years, he's one of the most powerful people in the world. And as one of America's chief antagonists, it's amazing how much Hamani has been shaped by American action. And that's in part why it's so important for those of us who live in the United States to take the time to understand him and to understand what the people of Iran have been experiencing since 1979 and since 1953. The only thing Hamani will not escape is death. But barring something truly unpredictable, it seems unlikely that Hamani's death will bring an end to the psychological torture of an entire nation. And that's all that really matters. Next week on Who Is, we address powerful political extremists, not abroad, but at home. It's Who Is, domestic violent extremism, next week. A sincere thank you to our guests, Dr. Erwin Abrahamian, one of the world's great historians of Iran. His new book, due out this summer, is Oil Crisis, From Nationalism to Coup d'Etat, from Oxford University Press. Manazov Kami, founder, president, and CEO of the Women's Learning Partnership and former Minister for Women's Affairs in Iran. Her memoir, The Other Side of Silence, will be out toward the end of this year. Maziar Bahari, a journalist and filmmaker, and Trita Parsi, co-founder and executive vice president of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, as well as the founder and former president of the National Iranian American Council. I'm Sean Morrow, your host. Michael McDowell is our producer. Laura Tillman is our associate producer. Mona Hassan is our writer. This episode was fact-checked by Parisa Sarange. Editing and mixing by Will Stanton. Production support from Pedro Alvira, Rob Baynard, and Amanda Earle. Our executive producers are Nancy Hahn, Brett Kushner, Sarah Frank, and Mangesh Hadakuder. And now this, Tina Xaros is our chief content officer, and Nathan Stephanopoulos is our president. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked what you heard, please rate, subscribe, and tell your friends.